0: From the hills of Central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Kurt Hockemeyer, the manager of the Turfgrass Diagnostic Lab at the UW Madison. Kurt is a graduate of Purdue University with both his bachelor's and master's degree, and has been in Wisconsin for over six years. Kurt has worked with Professor Paul Koch over these years, evaluating snow mold control products and the developer of the famous Hockemeyer snow mold prediction model. There's no question that nutrient management, especially potassium, can influence snow mold and winter injury, depending on what you're growing. No matter what you're growing, when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions, and that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. The professionals at the Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and back them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They have the research to back up their claims and products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Kurt Hockmeyer. Really appreciate you taking the time. You know, all you folks that run diagnostic labs are near and dear to my heart. Not because you're relishing when everyone else is toiling in the slop of disease and other pest problems, but that you really have to be thoughtful and think on your feet when you've got to do diagnostics, right? You want to look at what's there and tell them what's going on. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. And I want to just start with, what's it like running that diagnostic lab the last five years?
1: It's been interesting. Uh, You know, I got my master's degree in 2014 and uh, then came to the University of Minnesota and worked there for a year end of 2015 is when I started here at uh, Wisconsin and uh, I had a year working here before I took over the diagnostic lab. And so, you know, in my experience, diagnostics was never something that I particularly enjoyed. So when I was asked to take over the diagnostic duties, it was definitely a transition for me because like you said, it's a delicate balance you have to keep when talking to superintendents about what you're seeing in the sample that they sent you And what you think they should do, you know, you don't want to step on toes. You don't want to be, you know, overly aggressive in what you're recommending. And so uh, it's definitely been a learning experience for me, but something that I've enjoyed. And I think it's worked out well.
0: I couldn't agree more. And there's no way I'm letting you get off without... Telling me how you concocted that ad with you sitting on the sprayer blindfolded. It's absolutely brilliant. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, you pick up the most recent issue of the grassroots, the Wisconsin superintendent's newsletter, by far one of the best newsletters in the entire country. What's the deal with the blindfold? Were you parked there or did you actually fall into the bunker? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. uh, So I can't take credit for that ad idea. That was Dr. Paul Koch, who I work for. It was his idea. He was talking to his wife, trying to come up with ideas for, you know, how can we sell this to people that what we provide is a great service to them. And, you know, the idea is, you know, once you send in a sample to the diagnostic lab, find out if you've got a disease present before you go spray something you know because there might not be any disease present you know that's that's a very common occurrence with many of the samples i get and so so yeah we just borrowed a sprayer and i parked it right there right in front of the bunker and looked like i was going to be driving my sprayer right through the bunker and so yeah we've gotten a lot of compliments for that and it's definitely uh launch my modeling career. So that's, that's what I do on the side now is all the dad modeling.
0: (laughs) Well, and in addition, I always knew Paul wouldn't have been that smart to do this. So now I realize it's probably his (laughs) wife that's bringing up all these great ideas he's been researching. So listen, we're making fun of him and you guys are literally almost all that's left nowadays for people evaluating snow mold in northern climates, right? So that's a topic of conversation, and it couldn't be more timely. And before we get to that, Kurt, let me ask you, we're starting to come out here in the northeast, and we got a lot of winter damage. Not as much snow mold, but a lot of winter damage. Before we get to your snow mold, are you seeing low-temperature kill, crown hydration, ice encasement, anything that looks like non-disease-related kill?
1: Not that I've heard. We haven't been getting any reports of that. Usually you kind of have a good idea that those types of things are coming. Just it was a couple of winters ago, we had a big storm that came through central Wisconsin and just laid down a ton of ice. And we just knew after that storm that a lot of people were going to be having issues. So I'm not sure, you know, if you had something similar to that in the northeast, Frank. But this year, I think, luckily, it was just snow and a lot of it for a lot of people, which created a lot of insulating properties for the ground. And so uh, I don't think this is going to be a big year, at least in the Midwest, for other types of, of winter damage.
0: Okay. Well... One of the things the National Winter Injury Project is looking at are the conditions under which maybe kill occurs, and they've got monitoring sites throughout North America all the way into Canada. And you seem to be trying your hand at predicting things, the Hockmeyer Snowmold Prediction Model 2.0, again, that I was so pleased to read about in the grassroots. And I wonder if you couldn't take a minute and talk a little bit about... What it is you're uh, trying to predict here, and how it is you're going about it?
1: Yeah, so you know this is something that we would informally do every year. You know, obviously Paul Koch and I do a lot of snow mold research, and we would always talk like, "Oh, you know, what do you think the snow mold pressure in in Monaco, Wisconsin is going to be, or or what do you think it's going to be in Marquette, or?" You know, we didn't get a ton of snow in in January here, but you know, we had a ton in December. You know, we, we were always informally doing that. And so I thought it would be a fun idea to put those topics of conversation into an article that other people can read so that maybe they can start thinking about the types of things that go into you know, snow mold pressure every year. And so I think one of the biggest concerns is what the surface temperature of the soil is throughout the winter. And that's probably going to be the biggest driver of snow mold pressure in any given year. You know, these snow mold fungi, they don't love super cold temperatures, but they can tolerate the cold temperatures, right? And so if things get too cold, you won't get a ton of snow mold pressure. And so that's where the snow cover comes in. Snow cover actually insulates the ground. And keeps it from getting too cold. And so you can have bitter cold nights all throughout January and February. But if you've got four or five feet of snow, you know, the ground is going to stay at like 30 degrees Fahrenheit pretty much the whole time. And it's not necessarily the optimum temperature for these snow mold, but uh, it's definitely a great temperature for them to produce disease and to, and to kill some turf under the ground. So that's probably the biggest thing is what we're concerned with is the soil temperature. And so we'll look at when was the first big snowfall? You know, was there any big melts that occurred? How long did that snow cover last? Those types of things. And so that's not an exact science. I, I mean, I'm really just guessing here with this article on what I think is going to happen. And uh, so far, I've done two years of this, this guessing, and I have a very good percentage right now, but <laughs> I, I like I like to make the joke that, you know, Mother Nature doesn't read the textbooks.
0: That's right.
1: And so, you know, we have all these ideas of what we think is going to happen based on, you know, what we know in the textbooks, but... It's Mother Nature, you know, she's going to do what she's going to do. And, you know, I'm also relatively new at this job working with snow mold. So every year I'm learning and trying to incorporate more information every year. So it's just kind of a learning process and just kind of something fun. And I've gotten a lot of compliments on that article. I think a lot of people know I'm trying to have fun with it. And so they enjoy it as well. Well,
0: I can't wait till you can actually put in the scientific literature snow mold utopia. And have it as a Hockemeyer Coke reference. You know, there's a lot of snow mold, and then I've had better snow mold and baby bear snow mold. And I want you to say what the last one is snow mold. What is it? How do you say the last one?
1: Mold spelled with a U?
0: Yes. I
1: don't. I think in Canada and maybe in uh, in Great Britain, sometimes they spell words with a U added in there. So uh, I thought I would make a reference to that. That sometimes they can't spell it right. You know, that's how little snow mold they get.
0: It's so interesting to hear you tweeze out what you think are primary factors that might drive this very interesting disease. Right, and I mean, let me tell you, in my career, I've sat in front of that famous pathology professor from. British Columbia, that looked at like the sclerotial rind of these things and was, you know, Ishikariensis from Incarnata. And I can go pretty deep. But what I want to talk about is this very interesting comment you made, and you just said it here. When you have open winter, even if it's wet and you get a blast of really cold air, your suspicion is that knocks back the snow mold was that true this year?
1: Yeah, it was. Here in Madison, especially, we had very little snowfall, well below average. We didn't get the first snow until just after Christmas. And, you know, it was a decent amount of snow, but we just had very little on top of it. And so it was a thin layer of snow. And so that thin layer of snow just did not do a good enough job of keeping the ground insulated. And so, you know we have one study here in Madison that we do everything we can to get disease and so we we inoculate it with the microdochium fungus we cover it with like insulation board and then we cover that with a a tarp to kind of trap any moisture and any heat that we can to help simulate snow and so anything that outside of that one study we did we had very very little almost non-existent snow mold here in madison because you know we think that when the soil temperatures just get too cold then you don't get any snow mold whatsoever
0: you indicated when you were writing this and in your follow-up about control that it's a complex environment right i mean in your model you're looking at monthly temperature departure from normal snow totals departure from normal, lowest snow depth, you know, all these things you're looking at. As you're going to get better at this, what did you learn from this year you think is going to make 3.0 better?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. Sometimes it's just getting a feel for what are the most important things. You know, I believe it was last year in my prediction, Manaqua is one of the sites in northern Wisconsin that we have one of our studies They just didn't get a ton of snow as opposed to what they normally get. But where we have our study located on their course, it has a great little microclimate. It's tucked into the trees, it's a north facing slope. And so all of these things probably combined to have really great snow cover. And so even though they were below average on snowfall for that particular year, you know, we still had a ton of snowmold pressure on this this little site that we had or this one little study that we did there in Monaco. And so, you know, microclimates are pretty important and all these little things, they interact in weird ways. Maybe, you know, this is all a very unscientific prediction model I've got going here, but you know, there's some good research projects going on. The winter turf project that is spearheaded by uh, the university of Minnesota. They're doing a lot of good work. We're collaborating with them. And so we're hoping maybe we can kind of get something a little more scientific into the research that we can maybe more accurately predict the severity of snow mold at any given site.
0: If I told you I was going to get about a foot of snow that was going to come in late December and was going to leave in one fell swoop in the middle of March, and then everything else happened above it, it never freeze and thawed, it just stayed a fluffy snow for all that period of time... Would you predict that to be snowmold utopia?
1: I think it would be close. We had something very similar to that happen here in Madison last winter. We got a good chunk of snow in mid-December, that lasted until early March, and so very similar to your example here. And so that was 60, 70 days of good insulating snow cover. And so uh, that's kind of the one of the numbers floating out there in terms of severe typhula infection, typhula being one of the the snow mold fungi, uh, is 60 days of continuous snow cover. So I would think that would be maybe not snow mold utopia, but you know, maybe one step down like 70 to to 80% disease I would guess. All
0: right, so listen, let let me ask you a question and then we'll take a break and We'll come back after a word from our sponsors. How much pink versus gray across the board? You know, obviously, the example I gave you probably is one of those gray snow mold examples. But when yeah. you peel back, even where you inoculate and do other things, do you usually see both or do you sometimes just see one and not the other?
1: So, a lot of times we do see multiple snow molds within one given site. Usually, we don't typically see. So there's two different types of typula snow molds. There's typhula incarnata or gray snow mold and then typula ischicariensis, which is speckled snow mold. We don't really see too much mixing of those two, but one of those two will usually be mixed in with microdochium neval, which is the the pink snow mold. So and then generally speaking, the typulas are gonna be more prevalent the farther north you go, the more snow cover you get. Whereas the microdochium is gonna be more prevalent in the more southern locales that still get snow, like here in southern Wisconsin or, or something like that.
0: I'm with Kurt Hockemeyer, the director of the Diagnostic Lab at the UW-Madison, a place I got to spend uh, four years of my life and absolutely loved it there. We'll be right back after this message. Uh, I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speak. The large amount of moisture that fell on northern areas the last several months has made the disease and winter injury worse. Well-drained sand profiles are critical, and Dry Jack Sand Injection Services aid in drainage. Dry Jack Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for coarse sand particle injection that will lead to better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Dry Jack Services representative or visit dryjack.com. All right, listen, we're back here, frankly speaking, talking snow mold. And before I get to controls, I'm a little bit interested in Beyond Environment. You say you do everything to enhance snow mold. And somewhere I read in there, well, of course, everybody knows one of my favorite topics, you actually put on a fair amount of potassium at the end of the year to really goose it for snow mold. Is that working for you?
1: Yeah, we think so. That's something that I believe it was Doug Soldat, your old student, who kind of stumbled on that probably shortly after I started here, maybe five, six years ago. He has obviously done a lot of work with potassium, and we came out of winter one year, and the plots that he had highly fertilized with potassium had significantly more snow mold on it than the plots that had like the low potassium treatment or the no potassium treatment. So we don't really know why that is, but that's something that we've started to do. is we know what plots here at the research station are going to be hosting our, our snow mold trials, and so we will try to juice them up with two to three pounds of potassium applications in the fall to try and encourage uh, as much snow mold development as we can and and like I said I don't have a great reason why that is you know we've speculated that maybe we're affecting the plant somehow that mm-hmm. potassium ions make it more susceptible to snow mold infection or maybe having uh, more potassium in the environment makes the fungus better able to infect the plant we're not really sure why but that's something that uh, maybe we could investigate somewhere down the road
0: and yeah, we've played around with that uh, over the years, trying to get people, especially with grass, like you're testing this on in a lot of cases, to at least pay attention to that. Now, listen, you can't look at this work visually and not be stunned by the starkness of how good fungicides work. <laughs> I mean, come on, Kurt. Some of these things, there literally is no green grass next to these plots And these fungicides are completely clean. I got to believe to a certain extent that's got to be amazing for you to see. And please let me know about that. And then let me ask you, being an old guy like myself, I remember mercury. I remember routine PCNB. And now it's pretty commonplace that we're putting down these multiple modes of action. Is that one of the keys to why you think we're getting these enormously good Fungicide control programs is the blend of active ingredients that we're starting to use?
1: Yeah, the first part of your question, uh, yeah, snow mold is, I think, as Paul Koch put it the other day on Twitter, it, it's the most photogenic turf grass <laughs> disease out there because it is such a huge contrast. And, you know, when we pull up to some of our snow mold sites, uh, sometimes our jaws just drop because, like you said, it's just completely straw brown. And then you just got these perfectly green little rectangles in the plot. And you're like, well, something worked, you know. And and so, so for sure, that is definitely a stark contrast when looking at some of these diseases. And as for the multiple AIs, yeah, that is something that I think is kind of unique about snow mold is... You know, for all these other turf grass diseases, you know, usually you can get pretty good control with one AI when it's applied at the right time at the right rate, and you've got other cultural practices uh, engaged to help you know combat disease. But for snow mold, barely anyone applies one active ingredient. You know, maybe down in more southern locales like Illinois, Indiana, maybe you could get away with with one active ingredient, but. You know, anything north of Madison, like I don't think anybody applies less than two. Most people are going to be going with two or more. And so that's something that's unique about Snowmold is that we've kind of seen this synergy going on with multiple AIs. Maybe you you apply fungicide A and it barely does anything. You apply fungicide B and maybe it does a little bit. And then you combine those two into one treatment and it works great. We've definitely seen that kind of synergy. And so that brings me to something that, you know, I would be interested in looking at in the future is to investigate further this synergy that we're seeing. It makes it difficult to know which AIs are doing the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. if any at all, because some guys might. Do even four or even five active ingredients in their snow mold apps. <laughs> and so, this is, you know, I don't know exactly how I would go looking at it, but I think machine learning is something that might be able to help break this down. We have over 10 years of snow mold research, and each year has anywhere from 70 to 100 treatments each year. And so, getting a machine to dig down into all of these treatments. And maybe picking out, okay, which AIs are consistently reducing snow mold the most? You know, maybe we can start to eliminate certain fungicides from snow mold programs, mm-hmm. because I'm sure that that both Dr. Koch and myself, we have our suspicions that there's some popular snow mold fungicides that really aren't doing much in a lot of superintendent's uh, tank mixes. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if we can identify those types of things, and uh, kind of figure out what AIs are actually doing the heavy lifting. You know, maybe we can reduce fungicide loads over the winter and and reduce, you know, budget costs for, for some superintendents. You know, I've talked to some superintendents up in Minnesota who say that the snow mold fungicide application is by far the single most expensive fungicide application they make all year. And it makes up a significant chunk of their total fungicide budget. You know, granted in Minnesota, they're not as much for you know, dollar spot or brown patch or, or those types of things. So if we can dial that snow mold application in, you know, that would make a huge difference in their overall budget and then also you know their environmental impact
0: as well. And to tie the two topics we've been yakking about so far, one is predicting, and the other is fungicide active ingredients. The interesting thing is, this is a almost entirely preventative control strategy. We're really not able to go out and intervene based on environmental conditions. So I didn't realize people were mixing five products together, but one of the (laughs) things, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me in the cocktail world we live in, but I will say this. I am curious about pigments in these combinations. I don't know that pigments in and of themselves, in my experience, give you any control, but some of them do persist in the canopy and i'm leaning towards now you know there's a lot of good products everybody should look at the great articles you guys write and the evaluations of the active ingredients and and try to find the most cost effective and and benefits that they get from it but pigments are included now where do you see pigments as a component to a snow mold application or treatment program
1: yeah so That's something that we've investigated a little bit because, like you said, a lot of products just come with pigments now, and a lot of guys will specifically add a pigment if they don't have one. You know, in my experience, they're not really adding much to the overall goal. They're not going to control any snow mold. The only difference that we really see is that the turf looks a little bit darker green coming out of snowmelt. So this is like immediately after snowmelt, it's going to still be green. And so some of the argument has been that, okay, well, if it's a darker green, it's going to uh, absorb more sun radiation and it's going to warm up quicker and you're going to get quicker growth and green up in the spring. Well, we didn't really see that. We did a small study where we would go out and we would measure the canopy temperature on treatments with pigments and without, and we couldn't see any differences in that. And there was no difference in the green up either. And the other thing to note is you can see some of these differences with these pigmented treatments, but those differences go away a couple of weeks after snowmelt. After that, we don't really see any differences on these plots. So in my opinion, pigments aren't really adding much, but you know, a lot of guys swear by them and still use them. So I guess they're going to be sticking around for a while.
0: The interesting thing you just brought up, the recovery idea, makes me wonder uh, the following. Those areas you don't treat, what if you didn't treat for snow mold and you just let it happen? How long do you think it would take? Well, you probably know. You go up to Manaqua, I mean, you know, snow mold heaven up there, and they get devastated, or they get devastated in Madison. You even get Tifula when you get buried. The untreated plots. How long until you think they can provide a playable surface again if you didn't spray for snow mold? Does it turn it to dirt or does it actually recover?
1: The short answer is that it depends on the severity of the infection. You know, in my short time here, I thought more along what, what your question was. It's like why are all these guys spraying these three, four, five active ingredient cocktails when the snow mold damage that I see it's recovered within a month and you can't even tell. And so, my experience early on was that uh, it really didn't make that much of a difference. One of the supers we worked with in northern Wisconsin a couple of years ago, he wasn't able to get any of his fairway fungicide apps down. Mm-hmm. And so, when we came back in the spring, you know, all of his fairways were completely straw brown. But just a couple of months later, you know, everything was fine. The golf course survived. You know, I don't think they lost any business. It was probably more work for the super to try and encourage that recovery. But, you know, how much money did he save on that fungicide app versus how much money did he spend in trying to recover in the spring? I don't think we have a clear answer for that, but I think that's something that maybe people should maybe start considering, especially for for fairways, the the large areas on the golf course,
0: yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I'm not suggesting we should let that happen. I certainly, it's not going to be pretty for a while. And then the other argument would be, listen, if I'm in Chicago, maybe I don't, maybe I get a pretty good dose of pink snow mold. Maybe I can treat that in the spring. I get into Madison where I'm going to get a little, maybe more snow and you got, looks like you got some gray out there. If I didn't treat, do you think I have a weaker plant during the season?
1: I don't think so. uh, Not in my experience. I've talked a lot in recent years about changing weather patterns here in Madison and how that's affected the frequency with which we get snow mold and things like that. You know, basically we were getting less snow mold here in Madison, I thought. And of course, the year after I give that talk, <laughs> we had two straight years of just tons of snow mold here in Madison. So of course, that's how it works. But the last year, we had the most severe snow mold damage here in Madison that I've seen. Snow melted in early March, and uh, we had a uh, Typhula incarnata infection, which is not unheard of, but it's not you know, the most common thing to get that more northern snow mold here in Madison. Basically, we didn't see full recovery until early July. Ooh. And so that was, that was four months Ooh. of being able to see the damage. Ooh. Now, it could have been playable, you know, depending on your definition of playable earlier than that. But it wasn't until early July that I saw full recovery, just meaning that I couldn't see any more evidence of the snow mold damage. You know, with that said, that was certainly a worst case scenario. We had a severe infection, and so that's not always going to happen every year. These bent grass plants were killed down to their crown. And so if you have a less severe infection, it's not going to kill it to the crown you're going to have a lot more crowns growing within the snow mold patches and those patches are going to fill much more quickly. And then also we just barely did anything. We had minimal inputs for recovery. Uh, We put a little bit of N down early in the spring and then just a little bit during the summer. Whereas if this were to happen on a golf course, you know, they might put seed down in the void. They're going to put more N down, you know, those types of things to try and encourage recovery. But you know, worst case scenario, damage can take up to four months, but that's not going to always happen in in every case.
0: Kurt, I really appreciate you taking the time and my condolences for having to spend a lot of time with Professor Paul Koch, one of my uh, favorite guys all time. Uh, and I hope you don't mind if I call on you during the season for a little diagnostic update as the samples start to come into the lab.
1: Absolutely. That sounds great.
0: Thanks very much, Kurt. Kurt Hockmeyer, the Director of Diagnostic Services at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks a lot for taking the time, Kurt. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Welcome to our newest sponsor frankly speaking, Frost Incorporated Spray Technology Products. I've known Ken Ross, the president and founder of Frost, for many years, and he's been a guest on this show, talking spray application technology. Frost provides the latest technology and best-in-class customer service to help their customers optimize their spray application programs. Visit them at FrostServe.com. That's Frost, dot com. Big thanks to Kurt Hockenmeyer from the University of Wisconsin's Diagnostic Lab. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryjet, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and our newest sponsor, Frost Incorporated, spray technology products for the discriminating turf profession. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business manager John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.